Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I had a great conversation with Dr. Brian Schmutzler. We covered the topic of anesthesia consolidation from a little bit of a different perspective, uh, what we might call a contrarian view. Uh, Dr. Schmutzler thinks that it's not actually the foregone conclusion that we've been hearing from many quarters. And in fact, there may be uh, just renewed space for independent physician practice in the specialty of anesthesiology going forward. He has lots of really interesting rationale for this. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined with a returning guest, Dr. Brian Schmutzler, who joined us back in the early 30s, as far as the episode number, and he was sharing a little bit about his career journey in the anesthesiology world, working in private practice, academics, and ultimately starting his own anesthesia company and doing consulting. He's one of these super smart guys that uh, I really value his opinion, his industry perspective. He he perceives what's going on out there, and he's here to share some of his thoughts with us today. Dr. Schmutzler, thanks for joining. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. The topic for today, and this is uh, what I will call a contrarian perspective based on a lot of the conversations I've had recently, even on this show, is thinking about industry consolidation, specifically in anesthesia, and is it the foregone conclusion that we are told? And... Uh, before we dive into that, which is going to be a fun and a little bit of a technical topic, why don't you just tell us kind of what's going on? What's your current practice look like? How has COVID impacted you and, and what's going on right now in 2021? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so um, 2021's brought a couple of transitions for me. Um, I went from just running a surgery center uh, to taking over the anesthesia at a physician-owned hospital. Uh, and so I've kind of moved away from some of that other clinical stuff at the surgery center. I'm still kind of dealing with that administratively, but primarily spending my clinical time at a physician-owned hospital. And we can go to that story sometime, but a bunch of guys I knew from town kind of got together and bought a hospital. So um, enjoying doing that right now and, and uh, improving the anesthesia there. Um, in terms of COVID from 2020, uh, you know, what happened through COVID uh, 2020 with us, um, I'm in Indiana, which we may have discussed before. And uh, here, we, uh, we had about six weeks of COVID shutdown um, where we were not permitted to do uh, truly elective procedures. Um, now, the surgery center where, where I was uh, running the anesthesia, we, we did a fair amount of, um, sort of kidney stone type procedures, cancer procedures, that sort of stuff. So we had several procedures where um, we really we continued to do some of that uh, non-emergent, but also non-elective surgeries, which uh, again, I, you know, I've said before, I think we did the right thing for, for the patients and the right thing uh, th for the center, so. Did you find that in that context, everyone had the same definition of what elective was? No, absolutely not. Every surgeon thinks their procedure is, uh, is urgent or emergent, so. Uh, no, I mean, there are things that are clearly, uh, clearly elective surgeries, um, cosmetic surgeries are clearly elective, uh, screening colonoscopies for the most part are elective, that sort of stuff. So, you know, we, we didn't skate the line there at all. Um, but having a tumor taken out, whether that's a tumor in the gallbladder, a tumor in the, uh, in the abdomen, a tumor in the breast, something like that, that's clearly not a truly elective surgery. Uh, 
a, a stone in the in the kidneys or the ureter that that's not an elective surgery so uh we we were we were pretty good about we, we kind of had a panel the the medical director of the surgery center and myself and then the ceo of the surgery center all sat down and, and went through all those cases for that six weeks and made sure that we were we were um obeying the laws of indiana and, and the executive orders but also doing the right thing by the patient yeah and just for our listeners understanding what's uh what does your anesthesia company look like as far as clinicians involved in care? Uh, so at the surgery center, we have uh, one doc and three or four CRNAs, kind of depending on the day. Um, a few other sites we have are, are um, it's basically two to one uh, doc to CRNA or CRNA to doc ratio. So two, two CRNAs for every doc, pretty much every location we have. Um, here uh, at the, the physician-owned hospital where, where we just started, it's... Uh, uh, one and a half full-time docs. I'm one of them. And then we have a 0.6 uh, FTE doc and then uh, four CRNAs. So uh, we, we do a care team model, uh, mostly supervision, meaning, you know, the anesthesiologist is involved in the care of, of all the patients, uh, but not necessarily um, directly directing. That makes sense. Yeah. We're going to do a separate episode on that. <laughs> supervision versus direction. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then as far as 2021, you know, I've been hearing stories, uh, you know, obviously April, May were very uh, slow and then things have ramped back up. And then towards the end of the year here, I was reading uh, uh, Tony Mira, uh, anesthesia business consultants, has a, a great newsletter that he puts out periodically. And he was saying, you know, everyone, well, the consensus is that people are running like 100 to 110 percent right now as far as OR capacity. And I've heard reports that say that may go until mid 2022 just to get caught up. So what are you seeing on the ground right now? Yeah. So the, the six weeks um, we were, I'd say for the whole six weeks, we probably were at about 20 to 30% capacity. And I think uh, so May, I can say May 4th was the date we were allowed. I think it was May 4th was the date we were allowed to, to go back to it. We had about a week of 50%, two weeks of 75%. And then the rest of the year, we were 100 to 150%. Uh, of what we normally do. Um, I didn't go back and look how we ended up the entire year. I think it was pretty close within 10% of what, what a normal year is at the surgery center. Um, I can tell you that the surgery center is, has continued at, um, you know, we, we kind of averaged around 85 to 90 cases a week at, at that particular surgery center. And I've been kind of following along. It's about 110 to 115 for January and the first week of February. Um, same, same here at, uh, at the physician-owned hospital, uh, you know, third and fourth quarter were crazy, uh, just looking back at some of the data. And we've been, we've been running pretty, uh, at least compared to, it's a little hard to compare because they, they weren't fully up, up and going in January, February of, of 2020. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're running pretty, uh, pretty heavy <laughs> uh, in terms of the number of cases. So I, I think that there's a lot of de pent-up demand there's still some patients out there who are, who are afraid to have surgery because of COVID, but there's some pent up demand and that, that pent up demand, I think will continue for quite some time. Are you having to make any staffing changes to accommodate this uh, increased volume? Yeah. Um, I, I personally keep a cadre of PRN CRNAs um, in every area that I, that I have uh, contracts. And so I, I'd say we we're probably running, we're probably running about a half FTE over what we predicted at most places that that we have contracts. So I'm, I'm calling up and saying, Hey, can you work Thursday? Can you work Friday? Can you work next Tuesday? And, um, but we we're, we've been okay. Um, I, you know, we're not at the point 
there's a there's a break point, um, and sometimes that's 500 cases, sometimes that's 600 cases, depending on the facility. There's a break point of hiring another staff, uh, and so we're not quite to the point where we're hiring another staff, but we're certainly using a lot of PRNs. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that we've seen, obviously, in the last year with this, you know, shock to the system that COVID has been. Uh, is uh, the the anesthesia landscape, which was already constantly evolving, has been accelerated in certain ways. And some of that has to do with, well, it has to do with a lot of things. So tell us what you've seen in the last year and and how you've interpreted what you've seen. Sure. Uh, Yeah, a lot of movement, certainly. And there was even a lot of movement prior to COVID. Um, A a lot of the large anesthesia groups either merged, um, and we kind of talked about this before with you know, number one and number two in, anest- in the anesthesia world had a had a merger acquisition. Kind of depends which side you listen to. Um, and then uh, some of the the private equity and venture capitalists, uh, venture capital backed uh, large anesthesia groups um, had some financial difficulties. Uh, you know, leading to um, some issues with staffing, with contracts, and obviously with with cash flow. So, um, you know, I think it, we've talked about this before that that the general consensus across the ASA, across the anesthesia groups and around the country is oh, consolidation, consolidation, consolidation. Um, and, and I think that may have started 2020, but uh, as COVID hit and as more and, th- more and more things got exposed, I think that consolidation has really led to um, exposure of a lot of issues in the anesthesia world and that uh, that consolidation has slowed and even in some cases reversed depending on on what market you're in. Yeah, depending on who you talk to, you know, you feel like the unstoppable force of industry consolidation. I'm picturing Indiana Jones like running through the Temple of Doom with that huge boulder like rolling behind him and like there's there's no stopping it. But but it seems that the evidence that we've seen in 2020 has been that it's not that simple. And in fact, there are some forces, as you noted, that could be pushing more towards physician-owned or independent practice. Yeah, I think a lot of these large companies and a lot of venture capital uh, has gotten scared away by the risk that they didn't know existed prior to 2020. Um, you know, you and I have talked before, who would have ever thought that, that as a CRNA or an anesthesiologist, you would be without a job um, or furloughed or fired or your production or your, uh, I'm sorry, your salary reduced. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of this uh, risk that most of these companies didn't think existed or at least kind of pushed under the under the table a little bit came out in full force during COVID. And so I think there's been a, a big step back from venture capital, private equity, and even from mergers and acquisitions uh, because of this risk that's now, now obviously uh, much more to the forefront. Yeah. And so with private equity and venture capital, just I, I can't remember. I know we've talked about this in the show, but I want to just briefly kind of rehash the basics just for our listeners. So private equity is is the opposite of public equity, which is like the S&P 500, a publicly traded company trades on the stock exchange. You can exactly you can buy a share of GameStop, for instance, if you want to and uh, and own that and sell it. And it's very liquid, very easy to buy. And as such, the return the expected return, the money you expect to make on a publicly traded company is, in general, a little bit less because everyone has access to the same information all the time. Buying and selling happens in real time. With private equity, it's not like publicly traded. It's I and my rich friends or a a consortium of investors, we go and we buy a company where we think there's unique business opportunity, an opportunity to exploit, to make extra money above and beyond what the market perceives because it's not 
publicly traded and we're doing extra research that people don't know about and we have maybe an inside track. And so the way that public equity has perceived, this is a gross oversimplification, but the way that they've perceived the specifically anesthesia, and there was a JAMA article uh, a little while ago that looked at uh, PE acquisitions through 2012 to 2015, we'll try to link to it in the show notes if I can dig it up, that concluded that anesthesiologists were the most acquired specialty by private equity, including all the multi-specialty groups that PE had bought into. So it's an area of particular interest. And so these private equity guys, these smart dudes with their you know little think tanks doing the research that they're doing, they look at anesthesia and they say, it seems like there's an opportunity here to make some money that isn't publicly sort of perceived or known. Uh, and, and so there's an opportunity for investment. And so my two cents on sort of what has happened in this last year, uh, Dr. Schmutzler, I'd love for you to weigh in on this as well, is just that there were unaccounted for risks. You know, there was a big return expectation and that was great and things were probably going just fine until the big thing happened that no one could have possibly foreseen that not only hit private equity markets, but hit public markets as well. As well. If you look at what happened between middle of February and end of March, it was a, a massive crisis. We didn't know, like, is this the Black Death 2.0? <laughs> uh, and obviously things leveled out eventually, but in the process, these PE funds that had to pay significant you know, dividends, returns to their investors, they found that by the time they paid people and kept everybody happy, they didn't have enough money to have it continue to make sense to hold, you know, these companies that were now had a lot of risk built into them, a lot of downside that wasn't initially perceived. So all of that is to say, private equity, I think, is perhaps evolving a little bit in the way that they look at the specialty. And obviously, we don't think necessarily that another COVID is going to happen in the same way, but there's always that risk of something happening. And perhaps it has muted some of the enthusiasm that we've seen in this specialty in particular. That's kind of what I think and how I've interpreted the last 12 months. What do you think? Uh, I think the fundamentals of anesthesia haven't changed. Um, so you, you've got a lot of, of uh, anesthesia companies or anesthesia groups who run very fat, uh, who don't run well in terms of their financials. And I think there's a, a big, big opportunity there for private equity. So that's one reason they buy in. The other reason they buy in is there's zero overhead. Uh, we as, as anesthesia, as anesthesiologists, as anesthesia providers, we don't own our own machines. We don't own our own building. We don't have our own, you know, uh, secretaries and all that sort of stuff. We're, we're, we're very uh, low on overhead costs, uh, almost zero on overhead costs. So essentially what you're buying is uh, a set of employees and some contracts. So I think the fundamentals make, still make sense for private equity. I think what private equity and none of us ever really thought, uh, thought would happen <laughs> um, is that that risk would come in. Um, you know, who would have ever thought that all elective surgeries had to be canceled at a national level? Um, so, and I think what, you know, this, this is a pendulum that, that happens in any industry. Private equity buys in, private equity buys in, private equity buys in, and then something happens, the dot-com bubble, um, you know, the Silicon Valley bubble of uh, the early 2000s, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, of kind of bubbles that happen. And all that really means is that nobody took into account the actual risk. Yeah, and I think another element of this is sort of the legislative risk. And I'm I'm curious to talk about sort of the how it relates to consolidation, but I think that you know, if with a, a Democratic White House, Senate, and House, the potential for whatever single payer or Medicare for all ends up looking like for a specialty that reimburses 30% of Medicare rates. We don't know exactly how it's going to appear, but 
on face value, that doesn't seem to be good news for the profitability of the specialty. I mean, I, I'm just guessing here. So perhaps there's other factors at play that are influencing the way that these opportunities are perceived. That's that's possible. Um, you, you know, and I think you and I have talked about this briefly before, and then you, you've had entire shows on uh, on the reimbursement in anesthesia and how it's reimbursed as ASA units. Um, we as anesthesia providers, particularly anesthesiologists in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, took about a 90% pay cut when we came to the AMA uh, table to talk about, you know, re Medicare reimbursement. And for those of you who don't know, there's a pie that Medicare has uh, has out there. And we, as all the medical specialties, get to split that pie. And whoever kind of makes the most noise and does the best negotiating at these AMA meetings gets their pie either increased or decreased, depending on, on what everybody says. So um, we we took a huge cut in the, uh, the late 80s, early 90s. And so Medicare rates for anesthesia providers are not good, um, you know, very, very low as compared to other other industries or other areas in medicine. Uh, Medicare rates might be two thirds, half to two thirds of what your your private payer rates are. Uh, in anesthesia, it's um, a fifth, at best, a half uh, of of what your your rates are with your private payers. So, um, and to compensate for that. Um, essentially what hospitals do is they pay a stipend or they pay a guarantee to anesthesia groups or whoever comes in and does their anesthesia to say, hey, we have to have you. We have to do surgery. This is where we make all our money. 80% of the hospital's money comes out of the operating room. But we can't do that without anesthesia. And we can't pay anesthesia providers at the rates that Medicare, Medicaid, and even some of the private payers pay us. So what do we do? Well, we take some of that money that we get from our surgeries and we kind of pump it back into that anesthesia group. So, um, I, you know, yes, if we go to Medicare for all, do I think we're all going to take a pay cut? Probably. But do I think we're going to go to what the true value of that Medicare ASA unit is? No, it's not going to happen. The hospitals are still going to have to pump in money. So. It makes sense because you need both a surgeon and an anesthesiologist to do a surgery. <laughs> At least any kind of surgery I would want to be a part of as a patient. So you, you talked about overhead, and I think this is a great point. And I've talked to other, um, you know, friends who, who have pointed out this phenomenon of a physician-owned practice perhaps having, you know, if you get 10 anesthesiologists together who have a contract at the hospital, they don't need even office space, really. They, they It's so streamlined. And that can make their bid very competitive, even if it's, you know, physician-only and perhaps the, it's a different sort of care model. Uh, and so talk about the overhead component and how that relates to the private equity conversation and the different dynamics there. Yeah. So if you look at most surgical specialties, uh, which is where a lot of money is, you know, that are at least procedural based specialties, private equity is not going out and buying family practice docs, pediatricians, that sort of stuff. They're going out and buying hematology oncology docs. They're buying um, surgeons, uh, particularly orthopedic and spine surgeons. Uh, so, so they're buying, uh, up areas of medicine where there's money to be made. All those areas, those those surgical specialties, have somewhere in general, and I'm I'm not involved in a ton of these conversations, but I just kind of know from from what I hear at, at meetings and, and talking to people, somewhere between sixty and eighty percent overhead. So they, you know, if you collect a million dollars, you're really only taking home two hundred to four hundred thousand dollars because that other that other uh, you know chunk is going to your overhead. Um, that's paying staff, that's paying, you know, for buildings and for office space and all that kind of stuff. In anesthesia, really, our only overhead is billing. 
you know, you got to you got to pay somebody to do your billing, either in-house you're paying a particular person or uh, you're paying a company to do your billing. And, you know, that that ranges, but it's nowhere near 60 to 80 percent. Um, you know, and then often, uh, you know, if you're in a large private practice group, uh, you know, somebody will take some percentage of that to run the group. Um, or if you are part of a, 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 a you know, national group, that national group is going to take anywhere from 10 to 30 percent uh, off the top as overhead. So when you talk about overhead, you know, we as anesthesia have almost none. Um, and again, private equity comes in and they say, hey, you've got all these providers, you've got these contracts. It's not like we're looking at, okay, you do $2 million in revenue for a year per year, but you have to pay 8 million in, in uh, overhead. It's 10 million and that's the 10 million we got. And if we streamline it, we might make it 12 or 15. We're still not paying any overhead, so. So talk a little bit about, are, are there, so there's the overhead component as a, a differentiator or a reason that perhaps we should be excited about the future of independent practice, or at least not as, not as down on it as some others are. Uh, are there other, how, as you think about yourself and your own practice, you're obviously, you know, you started an anesthesia company, you have some employees, you've got some contracts. I'm sure you work hard to maintain those contracts to make sure the hospital, the surgeons are happy. The, you know, the executives running the hospital that you know them and they know you and there's an accountability there at the surgery center. People start on time. You probably, you, you can, you're aware of these things. So tell me about how do you as an independent uh, practice owner uh, insulate your, like protect that relationship, protect the contract to make sure that everyone's very happy and that you're not in danger of, uh, you know, being dislodged. Yeah. So it comes down to two big things, service and money. Okay, so, uh, you know, if you can streamline your practice and keep it inexpensive, so again, either zero cost or minimal cost, or, you know, occasionally you can even, uh, by kind of default, help the surgeons make more money because you're bringing in more cases, tougher cases, your turnover times are less. And so, you know, everybody's doing better. Um, so money is the big thing. That's what drives a lot of people. So you, you definitely have to be the uh, on the lower end of the cost. You don't have to be the lowest cost, but you got to be the lower end of the cost. And then service, right? That most of the places that, that I service, the surgeons own the facility. So they want everything to run great. They want it, They want to come like it's their house, right? They go to these big hospitals and they're, they're sort of like a guest at the big hospitals. But when they come back to their surgery center or their hospital, they want to feel like they're at home. And so, you know, always being available or having maybe even a little bit extra staff available to get them into a room. That's very helpful. Um, you know, having those conversations that, you know, that they know uh, all of the, uh, all of the surgeons and all of the sort of C-suite people or administrative people at all the places that, that I have contracts know that they can call me anytime. So I was in, I was in uh, a foreign country. I won't mention where uh, on vacation last week. And I spent, you know, probably 30% of the time on the phone, which is fine. You know, I, I don't mind. Um, and they're usually simple questions. Hey, this person wants to get a case on, but there's no room. How do we want to do that? And, and really just being flexible, but understanding that anesthesia is a service industry uh, more so than anything else. Um, you know, we don't have our own patients. Surgeons bring patients to us. And so in return, we need to make sure that we are, are doing the best thing for the patients, but also really acting like a service industry to the surgeons. It seems like a, a fellowship and OR diplomacy would be time well spent for somebody if that was even an option. How did you, how did you learn all these soft skills that are so critical? 
you know, so I had a little bit of business background, uh, even through college and before, uh, did a few different things. Um, and, and just sort of, you know, part of it is, is innate and part of it is just learning from other people, but sort of being able to read people, being able to understand what people want, um, and, you know, I had a few mentors, uh, both through college and, and through uh, residency, medical school and residency, who, who I just sort of try to pattern myself after just so that I, I'm able to, you know, I, I'm not, you know, the best things that we do as anesthesia providers is to help the surgeon come to their own conclusion of why something should happen, why a case should be canceled, why a patient should be done at a hospital, not a surgery center and that sort of stuff. So um, I think really just, it's just kind of reading people and, and knowing how to sort of softly bring up things and, and to help them th- kind of think through it themselves. It's almost like, and uh, you know, hopefully no surgeons are listening, but it's almost like with my kids, you know, I've got a five-year-old and a four-year-old. If, if I can make them make the decision themselves, they're going to love, you know, eating their broccoli or going to bed early or something like that. But if I just say, I'm, I need you to go to bed right now, it just doesn't work. So, um, Adam, you know, yeah, I mean, this is actually like, I think a pretty fundamental, like behavioral psychology tenet. And I, I use the same thing in financial planning. I can tell somebody what I think they should do, but it's way better if I present them with a set of facts that could potentially inform a certain course of action and allow them to draw that conclusion themselves that solidifies it and allows it to, you know, take root in a much more effective manner. I've yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's kind of bring it to a close here. Tell me about as 2021 is hopefully going to be a very busy and productive year for everyone. And hopefully, you know, we're seeing uh, new case volume continue to drop and hospital capacity seems like it's doing okay across the board. Who's positioned to uh, succeed and to thrive in an environment where things are getting really busy? Is it basically like the rising tide raises all ships? And if you're in anesthesia and you've made it this far, you're basically going to be okay because you're in the clear? Uh, You know, I I think it, it... It's kind of what kind of um, commitments do you have? So how, how much money are you owing to people? And that, this is a private equity and venture capital issue. Um, and then sort of how are your contracts run uh, and how much overhead do you have? So I think the, the people who are really positioned to do well, uh, medium to large size private practice groups who, who stay pretty lean and have good good contracts and, and good uh, relationships in their contracts. That's probably number one. Uh, number two, smaller national anesthesia companies that, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole crop of them that have come up now. Um, and I work with one in particular that I love. And again, we're not ta- talking any names here, but if you look me up, you'll figure out who that is. Uh, and uh, so, so these companies um, sort of decentralize everything. They don't have a big office. They don't have four CEOs and, 15 COOs and that sort of thing. Um, so these these smaller national companies um, that they keep overhead very low, I think are going to do quite well picking off contracts from the bigger anesthesia companies and the venture capital and PE backed companies. Uh, but I think everybody's probably going to do fairly well, uh, you know, pending some sort of additional crisis or Medicare for all or something like that. But I think everybody in anesthesia is going to do well. It's just how how much did 2020 really uh, affect the bottom line for some of these companies? Um, but you know, I, I think I think we'll all be okay. I just think that it's going to shift things kind of away from this big consolidation and back to sort of a smaller anesthesia group model. One thing you touched on, and I, I'd love to try to unpack it briefly before we wrap up, but just because it's so interesting and important, and it's a little bit technical, but maybe you could keep it high level enough for us to be able to understand the group contract 
dynamic, you know, in different environments. Can you maybe give a couple examples of what are some types of contracts, for example, that you or one of your peers who's an anesthesia company owner or one of the bigger companies might have with a hospital? And what does that mean in COVID? Like who bears the who bears the brunt of the losses? Who enjoys the upside? And then in a year like 2021, similarly, like what are some of the ways that those deals can be struck? And what are the implications for the people who are running the, the anesthesia? Well, there's several different ways to set up a contract with a, with either a surgery center or a hospital. Um, you know, probably the, the large anesthesia companies, and again, we won't name any names, but there's a couple in particular, large anesthesia companies will come in and pitch a contract. Hey, the hospital, uh, you know, I need you to pay me $3 million up front. I'll fix the anesthesia. And then after that, I take the risk. Uh, you know, so if, if we don't, if we don't produce, then I'm, I'm losing. If we do produce, I gain, but you paid me up front. And so they take all their money up front, stick it away, take it to their next contract, pay their, you know, shareholders, however, however they do it. Uh, so that's one way to do it. Um, I think that is probably not the best way to do it because then you bear all the risk. So you've spent that $3 million and now you have zero elective cases and are making zero money. A lot of those companies ended up having to furlough or, or fire or lay off uh, a number of anesthesia providers. And I, I think we talked before that uh, somewhere in the range of 70 to 80 percent of 1099 anesthesia providers were furloughed during during COVID. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to just set up a guarantee with the hospital, which says um, this year we will make 10 million dollars. If you bring us cases and we collect 10 million dollars, you owe us zero. If you bring cases and we make $12 million, you owe zero and we get to keep two $2 million additional. So great for everybody. If you only bring us $7 million in cases, you owe us $3 million to make up the loss. Um, I think that's more of a shared risk model, a um, little bit more risk on the hospital end, but a little bit more shared risk model, which seems to work fairly well for larger groups, larger hospitals. Um, and then there, there's always the no guarantee. We each take our own risk. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so we're going to take what we collect, but at the same time, we don't really owe you anything. So you want 10 providers, that's fine if you have 10 rooms worth of work. But if you have four rooms worth of work, you're getting four rooms worth of providers. And if you want more, you have to pay for it. So um, that, that seems to work pretty well at the hospital, a smaller location or even a surgery center where they don't necessarily need somebody sitting around all day long waiting for a case to come in. Um, so, I, I mean, those are kind of the ways to, that, that you, can, you can run anesthesia uh, in terms of contracts with facilities. Um, you know, I stay away from the asking for a bunch of money up front and then taking all the risk. Um, I'd say the majority of our other contracts are the, one of the other two ways that I described. Um, but there's still risk in it. You know, if, if COVID happens again, I'm still going to lose money. Um, and the hospital likely to lose money as well, but at least we're not we're not one-sided losing money on that. Um, was that kind of answering what you were asking? Yeah, I think so. That's that's helpful context. So I, I'm talking to a few people right now who are sort of kicking the tires on various jobs. Um, many, actually, I mean, a lot of people have already sort of signed for, for this coming summer, if you're just finishing residency or fellowship. But for people who are looking at, you know, practice A, practice B, are there, are there any of these dynamics that should inform the way that they're thinking about or looking at either financial viability or employment, like, uh, you know, durability or upside or anything like that? Or is it, is it more like for the, for the, you know, the executives to worry about or the, the practice owners and not as much for employees? 
if you're taking a job anywhere, particularly at a residency, there's a lot of things you, you want to look at with a job. So stability, right? How long has the group been around? Are they losing contracts, gaining contracts, or staying the same? And honestly, losing or gaining, either way, if it's too fast, it's a problem, right? You don't want to be expanding faster than you have staff because then you're going to end up covering post-call some random surgery center somewhere. And so you, you really want to look at stability of the group. You want to look at as much as they'll let you have it. And a lot of times they won't let a, a non-partner have it. But you want to look at profit and loss statements. You want to look at, you know, uh, find out how much does each partner get paid? How much does each non-partner get paid? Uh, how does that work? How do I get paid? Uh, and so there's a lot of questions you want to ask there. But if they'll give you a profit and loss statement for the last three or four years, that's great. I'd look at that personally. Uh, but a lot of times they won't do that. Um, and then, you know, this is something I think you and I are going to talk about a little bit later on, kind of in another podcast, but uh, non-competes, right? How stringent is the non-compete? How fair is the non-compete? How enforceable is the non-compete? And is there a non-compete? I personally don't, I don't sign non-competes anymore. And again, this is a conversation we can have in a broader context, but, um, you know, those are things that I definitely look at anytime you go in to, to try to take a position, um, coming right out of residency, even mid-career or late career. Um, and then always the question of, are you a W-2 employee or a 1099? What does that mean? How much flexibility do you have? And that sort of stuff. So, um, but if you're really digging in and trying to find which practice is right for me, stability and profit and loss. Great. Well, I'll talk to Brian Schmutzler. As always, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. My pleasure. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.